You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Welcome back to this last segment of Real Presence Live today uh, with your hosts, Jack Canelli, myself, and uh, Ken Cottrell. And uh, we're happy to have you with us, and we're happy to have with us as our last guest today, Dr. Chris DeCock. Chris was actually here uh, last Thursday, and in, he's here in the same capacity as an observer for the Uniform Laws Commission, uh, their drafting committee for the Uniform Determination of Death Act. And it's one of these things where uh, it's kind of a governmental function of sorts, and uh, we, it's something that uh, the public doesn't necessarily keep its eyes on, nor does the press, but it has some real implications for Catholics as far as uh, things that are happening in the world of bioethics and uh, the determination of death. And when Chris was on last week, we really did, you did, really didn't have enough time to, to fully cover the topic, and we were happy that we could have some time today so you could kind of, we could continue the discussion. So uh, why don't you introduce yourself uh, and, uh, you know, for those who may not have been tuned in last week, and also a little bit of an uh, overview of what was discussed, and then we'll get into what you want to talk about today. Sure. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. So... So my name's Christopher Deacock. I'm a child neurologist at Essentia Health. And as Jack said, I'm an observer for the drafting committee for the Uniform Determination of Death Act through the Uniform Law Commission. Now, it's not governmental per se, so if you don't mind me correcting you slightly on that, well, I thought Jack, I, I thought I hedged that good enough, but go ahead. <laughs> so, so basically what the Uniform Law Commission does is it, propo- it proposes model legislation that if approved by the committee at large, then gets sent back to the states. And then the states can decide whether or not they want to take up the legislation and add it to, you know, their state laws. Now, last week we had talked about this revision for the Uniform Determination of Death Act. Now, I don't want you to think that this is entirely a black thing because there are some good things that can happen in the revision. For example, um, conservative, you know, Abrahamic faiths, such as conservative Jews and Muslims, you know, don't even believe in the concept of brain death. And so having something like an opt-out, which is what we were able to get as one of the revisions for the Uniform Determination of Death Act is a good thing. However, the troubling change is that they want to change the definition of brain death. Currently, the definition of brain death requires your whole brain to be dead. And unfortunately, that's not what, that's not, that is not what is happening in medical practice. Because right now, they're only testing for partial brain death. And so, what is being pushed rather heavily is that we change the definition of brain death to come into line with the current clinical practice. Now, to be clear, The current clinical practice does not test for whole brain death. And when we look at what the Catholic Church has to teach about the idea of brain death, John Paul II was abundantly clear in 2000 when he talked to transplant surgeons and said that the idea of whole brain death is consistent with Catholic teaching, natural law, but to arbitrarily pick and choose where dead enough is good enough 
is not good enough, and that would be a violation of natural law. Yeah, it sounds like we're testing for almost dead, and that'll be good enough for us. Yes. And that I'm sure that opens the door to all sorts of mischief. Yes, it's uh, very serious mischief, too, I might add. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the biggest question and the biggest trouble I've had, you know, on the commission is that the people, you know, proposing this legislation are like, well, what's actually going to change at the bedside? Well, the only thing that's ultimately going to change is that you're now going from an objective definition of death to a subjective definition of death, and you're basically legalizing the inadequate medical criteria for the determination of death. And so the idea was that now that there's an opt-out, then basically we can do whatever we want to the definition of death because you can just opt out. But the problem is... That's inadequate because most people don't know that it's an issue. What I think is interesting about this whole discussion is that the law seeks to have bright line definitions. Correct. And this is entirely contrary to that. They're going from, you know, a very objective standard, you know, whole brain death versus, you know, almost dead. And uh, it's kind of like the depending on who is making the decision, which might be, you know, your physician or you're in consultation with family or whoever, uh, what course of treatment you get or don't get could depend on what their attitude is. Well, and that's, and that's 100% true. And actually, in discussing with some of the commissioners, they believe that death is a social construct. In fact, some of the representatives of the American Academy of Neurology believe such things that, well, we don't know when death really occurs, so we're just going to make a bright line in the sand, and that's good enough. And but, so who's to say what, what uh, is um, sufficiently partial uh, as far as partial death? Uh, right. Is, yeah, no, 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 I know. Yeah. And and to me, as a clinician, this is just asinine. Because why would I propose to do something that makes me less certain about my diagnosis and potentially causes harm to my patients? Because, you know, I quoted the Princess Bride last week, you know. Miracle Max said, you know, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. And if these patients are slightly alive... Then, if we, for example, harvest their organs, then we make them all dead. Now, Miracle Max was Billy Crystal, right? Yes, he was. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes you think that these these kinds of decisions are made just uh, as a matter of convenience. Uh, well, go ahead. I, I, so, so there's some truth to that. I think the problem is the public has been less and less certain about the idea of brain death because of these cases we had discussed last week of chronic brain death. And chronic brain death results when you have these mostly dead people who have residual neuroendocrine function and are going through pregnancies and puberty and just, you know, and, and persisting for years at a time. Now, the medical community just says, well, they're just ventilated corpses. Well, that's not exactly how it works, you know. Once you die, your body is supposed to disintegrate. And these patients aren't disintegrating, so there's a lack of trust. And so it's really questioned whether or not the clinical criteria are adequate. And the problem with this is 
rather than fixing the clinical criteria, they're just trying to change the definition. Well, that seems to be an easy way to get laws changed without changing the laws. Well, yes. You know, you think in terms of uh, what is marriage now. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I think this is, um, you know, it, it's very interesting because it's a, it's a type of, uh, it's a very important uh, uh, discussion that's going on. But uh, without you here on the radio, a lot of us wouldn't know about this because uh, so there are, you know, the government is such a vast uh, enterprise that there are lots of things going on that just don't get covered by the media. Well, of course, and let's be fair, the media coverage that's happened has been in favor of these changes. You know, it's sort of like the new HHS conscience change. They sought to strengthen conscience protection, yet they stripped it of all enforcement. So unless I'm living in a different world, if you can't enforce the law, I'm not thinking that's strengthening. Yeah, well, here's my surprised look. <laughs> You're not surprised. No, not at all. So it's, it's going to be different uh, for the most part by, by country around the world. But generally speaking, when you look at, say, Europe uh, or Canada, how, how do they compare to the U.S.? Well, uh, Canada's not a great example, as right. you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. um, they generally tend to gravitate more toward a, quote, personhood or a higher brain definition of death and that's basically what the proposed changes are calling it neurorespiratory death but it's really kind of a higher brain death so basically if you can't exercise your autonomy anymore you don't matter and therefore you're as good as dead mm -hmm. and the uk is even worse they have just brainstem death and there's been cases where people have come back from these diagnoses and it's causing them to rethink Unfortunately, you know, there's a group, it's called the World Brain Death Project, and it really pushes for this neurorespiratory thing. And I think it's because of a general feeling that the body doesn't matter, you know. In general, people are like, well, my brain is accidentally inhibiting this body, and if my body is still alive and I can't exercise my authority or my autonomy, what do I care? I might as well be dead. And I think it's that prejudice that is being pushed through on this. In fact, in one of our meetings, someone told me that we were an overrepresented minority and that 99% of people agree with... Um, a neuro-respiratory definition of death. Now, I don't know about you, in medicine, nothing's ever 99% sure. So whoever said it, I'm not sure what orifice she pulled it out of, but you can decide that for yourself. Yeah, and I, and I think the argument is that, you know, because 99% of the people want this, then the church needs to kind of switch its ways or, you know, change its thinking, and it's like, the church is not here to drift with the cultural uh, morality. The, the church is to be an engine of change or, an, or you know, uh, uh, a, uh, uh, a vehicle of stability, I think, for, mm -hmm. you know, uh, morality, if you will. Absolutely. And let's be honest, just because everybody does it doesn't make it right. And, you know... Uh, it's, I, I feel like when I'm talking to some of these commissioners, I'm talking to my children. No, we don't hit Billy because that's not nice, you know? Yeah. 
And I, I suppose some of them might have uh, misperceptions about how what the teach actually church actually teaches about these things. But we're coming up. Hold this thought. We're coming up on a break right now. We're talking to uh, Dr. Chris DeCock about his, uh, as an observer for the Uniform Law Commission's Drafting Committee for the Uniform Determination of Death Act. And we will be back with more after the break. So stay with us. Live, engaging, and local, this is Real Presence Live, where we bring you positive and uplifting stories and share the great things happening in our local area on the Real Presence Radio Network. As Catholic people, we recognize our lives are gifts from God. Blessings received are a result of God's grace and goodness. Our Lord entrusts us to be good stewards of His many gifts. We are called to conduct lives that honor Him and bear witness to our faith in Jesus Christ. Hello, this is Mike Kidrowski, Director of Advancement for Real Presence Radio. As we begin a new year, let's reflect a moment on stewardship. Your life should provide an example to others in the way you live your faith, the way you manage your possessions, and the way you plan your estate and personal affairs. You have spent a lifetime acquiring your assets and living your faith. Fortunately, we can provide you with an estate planning guide that allows you to put all of your important information in one place and enable you to document your intentions. To request an estate planning guide, please visit our plan giving website at rprlegacy.org or call me at 701-290-4503. Let's get started. This is Lavinia Spirito for Catholic Way Bible Study. In his letter to the city of Philippi, Paul exhorts us to rejoice in the Lord always. Then, just to make sure we get it, he repeats himself, rejoice. He encourages us to have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and thanksgiving to let our requests be made known to God. We can exercise trust and total dependence on Him. Praise, worship, and conversation with God are not designed to change Him. They are designed to change us. It is in the heart of that praise that we discover that nothing is impossible with God and that life in the Holy Spirit is a life of peace. This peace is our witness to a war-torn, bloody, fatigued, and depressed world. This peace is our birthright once we completely belong to Him. Catholic Way Bible Study. Peace. Power. Purpose. Find out more at cwbs.org. You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Okay, welcome back to the la- this last half hour of Real Presence Live. I'm your host, Jack Canelli, along with Ken Cottrell, and we are talking with Dr. Chris DeCock about the Determination of Death Act that's being uh, worked on right now by the uh, Uniform Law Commission. And uh, there's certainly some concerns, you know, from the standpoint of uh, uh, Catholic bioethics and mm-hmm. uh and and actually, they are things that can affect uh, all of us. And uh, um, yeah, it's it, it's kind of scary stuff. And, mm-hmm. and it's quite you know it's quite interesting. I mean, you were talking about the uh, the objective whole brain death, you know, uh, uh, de- determination of death. But now we're kind of uh, moving over to the uh, partial brain death, if that's the right terminology or whatever. 
uh, which is a, a subjective standard which leaves room for interpretation for one doctor can say, yes, I think that person is dead, and the other one might say, no, I don't think they are at all. And uh, it, uh, it's certainly, when you don't have that kind of bright line uh, boundary, it leaves the door open for all sorts of things. And uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about some of that. Sure. Now, one thing I want to say before I go there. So um, I talk about the medical criteria being inadequate here in the United States. You know, they were originally designed to test for whole brain death. I don't think the omissions in the criteria um, were a push to only do, a, you know, uh, pardon the expression, a half-assed job. Um, but initially, what happened is they were sufficient when they originally were applied in the 1980s. Unfortunately, technology has moved since then, and we've gotten better at helping out these patients so that these chronic brain-dead patients did exist. Now, to be clear, I had mentioned, you know, in the UK, they've had people recover from, you know, brain stem death. No one has ever recovered from the current clinical criteria here in the United States. So it's not that these criteria are bad. It's just that as technology has progressed, they've become inadequate. Now, changing from an objective standard to a subjective standard obviously has problems, right? Because once you change the goalpost, it's easy to change it again and again and again. Now, to be clear, this change would not make someone who's in a persistent vegetative state dead, by definition. It would not. However, I worry that you've changed the definition of death once, let's change it again, right? And with the push toward, like, uh, you know, physician-assisted suicide or medical aid in dying or whatever you know, kind of euphemism you want to use for euthanasia, um, you know, this can roll into this as well. So, for example, let's talk cardiac death for a second. So, for example, what happens, they can do this thing called control cardiac death. So, when your heart stops, you have a DNR order, they restart your heart, and then they can take that heart and put it in another person. Well, were you really cardiac dead if you're able to do that, right? So that would be the first question, and they're constantly pushing on that door. But what they're doing now in some institutions is once you're cardiac dead, they restart the heart and put you on ECMO. So basically, a machine is breathing for you and circulating your blood, and then they clamp off your carotid arteries to cause chronic brain death, and then... They can harvest your organs, you know, when it's most beneficial. However, there's a procedure that's being talked about called whole body gestational donation. Now, recall I said that these patients can go through puberty, can maintain pregnancies. Well, what people are thinking is they want to take these, quote, ventilated corpses, who I would argue are actually slightly alive, severely neurologically disabled patients and use them as incubators for IVF and other procedures. And then I can only imagine that once they're no good for that anymore, then you harvest their organs. And the objectification of the patient is the real problem. It's the objectification 
of each other. It's this utilitarian push to view the patient only in so far as what you can get out of them. And that's really where this problem lies. Because why on earth would anyone even think to do that sort of thing? Why would you clamp someone's carotid arteries after they're dead? I mean, clearly you're using a human person. Right, and uh, it's interesting, though, how just this definition that we're talking about could open the door to all sorts of stuff like this and oh, things absolutely. that we probably haven't even thought of. Well, know. the problem is, the more I'm finding out is that I'm clearly not um, evil enough in my thinking because just when I think it can't get worse, it seems to get worse, and that's the problem. I would, I would have never conceived of an idea such as whole-body gestational donation, but you know, when we talk to some other observers on the committee, they're like, well, they're dead anyway. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, they're not really yeah. dead. And, and who but, knows what else technology can you know, offer to us <laughs> You know, right. in, in, oh, yeah. you know, in good directions as well as in bad directions. Correct. So, yeah. you know, I don't want to paint too bleak a picture, but uh, it's just interesting, though, how just a, the change of a definition can just kind of open the door. You know, and then, you, you know, then you can say, well, we're on the slippery slope and people say, oh, don't worry about that. And then if you look at uh, like the Netherlands and their experience and in, in, I think even in Canada with euthanasia, it's like, the slippery slope is very efficient. Oh, yes, it is. You know, it'll get you there. Well, let's put it this way. Uh, there was a uh, veteran up in Canada who needed a, like a wheelchair lift, and the Canadian healthcare system said, well, we're not going to pay for that, but here's your form for euthanasia. Mm -hmm. yeah. maybe, maybe you can talk to us about, you said you were an observer. Um, well, I still am an observer, yeah, uh, and, uh, Un unless I hear that. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm I'm curious to hear maybe a few uh, anecdotes, a few stories of your discussions as an observer, or if if you're able to have those, uh, in regards to I imagine it's virtually impossible to make a slippery slope argument to these folks. Oh, absolutely. Because I think about I think about how the you know the redefinition of marriage. Well, you know, two people love each other, so allow this, and all of a sudden we have the complete breakdown uh, of the mm -hmm. nuclear family. Uh, and so all of these little, you give an inch, you give an inch, you give an inch. Yep. And so that's where you know, what you discussed as far as uh, that aspect it really impacted me. Mm -hmm. But I'm just very curious that sure. when, no. you're, when you're talking to these folks. Well, okay, so let, let's make it simple, okay? Medicine, secular bioethics, has decided that artificial fluid and nutrition are a medical treatment. I guarantee you the vast majority of observers and commissioners believe that artificial nutrition and hydration are a medical treatment. And that Terry Schiavo wasn't starved to death wasn't, well, technically it would have been dehydration first over starvation, but she wasn't killed, right, because of withholding these, because they call it a medical treatment. So, for example, we were talking about conscience objection. Well, these guys don't even know what conscience is. They think it's, you know, the Disney cartoon where Pluto's got the bad dog on one shoulder and the good dog on the other. You know, they think people are their own gods and whatever they decide, they think it is. But as you and I both know, conscience is adhering to a moral sense of principles in one, you know, aspect and 
acting based on that adherence to that moral set of principles. It's the face of Janus. And, you know, very learned people don't even understand that concept. And like I said, for me, the thing that is most troubling is that nobody cares about certitude. You know, I'm a clinician. I do what's right for my patients. That's why I went into medicine, to take care of patients and to reduce a patient to what I can get out of them, to be less certain, just boggles my mind. I don't even know why we're having these discussions. But then, you know, you combine that with a denial of objective reality, right? Because remember, we're in a, you know, a neo-pagan society, a Nietzschean will to power, whatever I can will, I can have. Logic is lost on these people. Yeah. Common sense is lost on yeah. these people. Well, one of the things that happening that's happening with clinicians, too, is that... Uh, you know, your ability to exercise your conscience is coming under fire. Uh, you know, the idea that I, I will not perform this service for this patient even though they are wanting it because it's immoral. And it's kind of like uh, the pressure is forget, forget your morality, doctor. You've got the skills, you've got the privileges to do it and the, the technology to do it. You're obligated to do it because that's what the patient is demanding. Right. Well, in fact... Ezekiel Emanuel, who we all remember as Obama's, you know, number one bioethist doctor, was quite blunt in his statement. He said, look, there should be no conscience objection in medicine. Physicians are voluntary. They are not cons conscripts. And therefore, if you do not want to do what the profession tells you you should do, you have two options. You either leave medicine or go into radiology. That was his advice. Yeah. And all of this is a result of the commodification of medicine. Let's be clear. When they call you for your appointment, you have an appointment with your provider. Well, I'm sorry. I don't provide medicine. I'm not a vending machine. I am a practitioner of medicine. And as a good doctor, if you ask me for something that's bad for you, I have a duty via beneficence to do what's good for you despite you. And in fact, I use my doctor as an example to my students of a good doctor because he's much more interested in my weight loss than I am. And every time I go in, he harasses me about losing weight. But that's because he's a good doctor, not because he's harassing me. Yeah. Uh, it was, I think, I think it was Obama's Secretary of Health and Human Services when she was talk someone was asking her about abortion and Catholic students going into OBGYN and her response was well maybe they need to rethink the idea of going into that field of medicine or even the field of medicine. So I mean mm -hmm. a lot, conscience is coming under fire and it's going it's to be already tough to, under it's fire. going to be tough to be a catholic doctor but we're going to let's save that thought we're coming up we're on we're at a break right now so let's go to the break and we're talking with uh, dr chris decock and uh stay with us for more real presence live on the other side live engaging and local this is real presence live where we bring you positive and uplifting stories and share the great things happening in our local area on the Real Presence Radio Network. God's blessings to all of you. 
My name is Father Chad Wilhelm, and I'm a priest of the Diocese of Fargo. And this year, I celebrate 25 years of being a priest. And the joy, the great things that I love about the priesthood is the deep relationship that Jesus and I have as speaking heart to heart. He knows the depths of my heart, and He speaks to all of us in the depths of our heart. That's what I enjoy about being a priest, that I get to speak about Jesus, not just on Sundays, but every day of my life, and that I've given my life to Jesus and the Church. What a wonderful grace and a gift that has been for me for 25 years, and to serve the good people of the Diocese of Fargo, but just to serve the Church as a whole. May God continue to bless all of you as you listen to Real Presence Radio. I'm Father Richard Kunst with a Papal Minute. Some papal stories may be based more on urban legend than on fact. One such story involves the immoral and obese Pope Alexander VI, elected in 1492. On May 6, 1503, the Pope watched the funeral of his overweight grandnephew, Cardinal Juan Borgia Lanzo, from the window in the Vatican. This is a bad month for fat men, he said, and just at that moment an owl flew through the window and flopped dead at his feet. Bad omen, it's a bad omen, he cried, and ran back to his apartments only to die himself 12 days later. At the exact moment of his death, on the 18th of August, 1503, people on the street reported seeing several devils fly out of the window of the dying Pope's room. This has been your Papal Minute. To learn more, visit papalartifacts.com. That is papalartifacts.com. You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. Back to the show with your hosts, Jack Canelli and Ken Cottrell, and our guest, uh, Dr. Chris DeCock, talking about the uh, definition of um, death, you know, to put it simply. Yes. And, uh, there's a, there's a process going on with the Uniform Laws Commission about uh, redefining uh, death. And uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about where we are in that process. Sounds great. So basically, at first there was a committee looking at should we even revise Uniform Determination of Death Act. And that decision's already been made. There will be a proposed revision to the Uniform Determination of Death Act ultimately sent to the states unless the whole thing just implodes on its own. But I'm guessing there will be. Now, right now, I'm in the drafting committee. So right now, there's two proposals being sent forth to the committee at large this summer to see which direction do we want to go. One of the proposals said, let's leave the language alone. Let's not change the law because there's uniformity. And let's be fair. If you change the law, you're going to have less uniformity and more chaos. So in general, the lawyers don't like that. However, they're also going to propose this new definition of death. And that's going to occur in Hawaii in July. Now, unfortunately, that is a commissioner-only event. Um, I will be there anyway, but I won't be allowed to be speaking. And the committee is going to present to the commissioners saying we either 
leave this definition alone or we change this definition. There is a very strong push to change this definition. And so what we need to do is we need to do our best to educate people so that we can let the commissioners know that, look, we're not going to stand for this gerrymandering of this definition of death. You know, we believe that brain death exists when the whole brain is dead. Now, I say we believe there are some Catholics who don't believe in brain death, and I respect their opinions, but that choice is not even on the table. So if you want to go bark up that tree, you're not going to get any leeway. So we have two choices. We either, one, kill this proposal and stick with what we've got and then maybe push medically for people to tighten the criteria. And so that's coming up in July. And so that's why I've decided that, you know, we need to get the word out. And in fact, what we're going to be doing in the diocese later, I've already talked to the bishop about this, is we're going to have an event probably in early May that people can come to and will present on the topic. So look to your church bulletins and, you know, hopefully on Real Presence Live and stuff like that for a date. We don't have a date set yet, but we will be doing that because people need to know. Because let's be honest, if people don't say anything, this is just going to go through. And then if it goes through, then it becomes a battle in the states. Correct. And let's be fair, I want to kill this now before the committee at large decides, oh, yeah, this is an okay route. We can go to go this way. I don't want them to do that. I want the commissioners to know that the people don't want them messing around with the definition of death. Now, again, people are going to say, well, you're just talking about the slippery slope. Well, no, this isn't the slippery slope. Right now, the medical criteria, they're good, but they're inadequate, Right. And we are killing people who are not actually brain dead to harvest their organs. And it's about half the patients who are declared brain dead by the current clinical criteria who are actually slightly alive. Yeah. And I, I, I can see, though, where, uh, you know, in the secular world, uh, the idea of having this subjective uh, criteria, it opens the door to a lot of stuff. Well, you know, uh, you know, you know that's, that's not what people are saying. They just no. say we want to, you know, we want to align the law with medical yeah. practice. Now, but again, that's asinine. Yeah, the, um, this is kind of off the track. But you mentioned the other day, uh, Dan, is it Daniel Solmazy? Yes. Is, uh, is kind of... Yeah, I'm working a, with him on this. Yeah, yeah, and he's a very prominent uh, Catholic bioethicist. And didn't you say that his... Institution, I forget which one it is. Georgetown. Yeah, did they adopt the... Well, they actually had a webinar um, earlier this month on the Catholic Health Association. So you can find it on YouTube. And they're actually telling people that, no, we need to step back. We need to tighten the criteria. And hopefully they'll be able to get some traction among healthcare, Catholic healthcare, to tighten the criteria. Because... There's no law saying we can't be more certain. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my hope is, you know, I've published with, or I, at least I've submitted publication with uh, Dr. Somazi, and we're writing another paper, I and my colleagues at Georgetown, that will be out before July so that it can be readily available. 
But even if, God forbid, this goes to the states and the states are like, yeah, great, partial brain death, that's awesome, we're going to go with it, you know, we can still be more certain. There's nothing to say that we can't be more certain. And in Catholic healthcare, I mean, let's be, let's be, let's be serious. Catholic healthcare, sorry, Catholic healthcare is based on the intrinsic human dignity of the human person. And, and that's what drives me bonkers about this gender-affirming care and crap like that. Because guess what? We do better than that. If I reduce your dignity to your gender, I am harming you, right? So Catholic health care is already the best that we can be. And what we need to do in Catholic health care is make sure that we're being more certain because you need moral certitude. And that's what John Paul II told us. In determinations of death, you need moral certitude. Yeah. And if anybody wants to know what the church teaches in terms of Catholic bioethics, the they have what's called the the USCCB has uh, published the Ethical and Religious Directive for Catholic Healthcare Services, mm-hmm. and it's it's a very it's only about thirty pages. It's very short yep. and very concise and very readable. And it's online yeah. for free. <laughs> and I heard that the USCCB came out with a new pronouncement this morning, and I don't know if that's in the it'd be a addition to the ERDs or or not about you know, kind of affirming what you were just saying, the body-soul unity, you know, and it, and it was kind of to address what's going on with, you know, the transgender therapies and all. Oh, absolutely. And in, in closing, you know, last time I had mentioned the five-legged dog. You know, this is Abraham Lincoln's thing of, if you call a dog's tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? Well, secular bioethics says five. But we know that objective reality is truth, and it's four. So it doesn't matter if we call mostly dead all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. And right now, we are harming patients by our utilitarian goals, by our indifference to their suffering. Right, and it's interesting how when when you get a real understanding of what the church really teaches and not the misrepresentations that are out there, it's, you know, it's like you said. We do a good job. The church is we do a just fantastic spot, job. Spot on. Okay. Well, with that, I'm sorry. We it's time for us to uh, to to close down our discussion. But we want to thank uh, Dr. Chris DeCock for being with us this morning. This has been an interesting conversation. I've I, I've really enjoyed it, and uh, I hope we've uh, you know enlightened some people as to the things that are going on out there and that they should be keeping an eye on because it's important and it can affect mm-hmm. us. But and another good resource is the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Exactly. I actually did a podcast with them um, entitled Bioethics on Air. It's episode 109. So if you want to hear a little bit more about that, that's a place to look. And they're spot on as yes. well with their bioethics. Yep. That's the National Catholic Bioethics Center. And with that, we will go to Rachel because people have been waiting to hear you. On the next Real Presence Live, Thursday from 9 to 11 a.m. Central, Heather Caro is your host, coming to you live from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. She'll be speaking with Mark Ellerkamp about the events happening in Culbertson, Montana, the fish fry capital of the world. And Dan Belinsky will be speaking about the upcoming North Dakota-based Western film, End of the Rope. All this and more is coming on the next Real Presence Live, Thursday from 9 to 11 a.m. Central. Back to you.
Well, what did Culbertson, Montana do in order to secure the title of the fish fry capital of the world? I can hardly wait to hear that one. Well, but we're the deviled egg champion capital of the world. (laughs) Well, that's only for some very uh, few insiders. But, uh, well, Ken, I'm going to have to uh, rely on you. We've got a few minutes here yet to go. Unless, uh, unless Chris, you've got to want to give a parting shot before you leave the studio, but cue up a joke. Don't, oh, Lord. Don't shake your head at me. Cue up a joke. Uh, let's see. They're all clean enough to read on online. Well, let's see. There's a. This has Don't a, try to pick the best one because okay. this, oh, this yeah. one has. Jack, a, Jack, I've got one for you. Okay. What did the fish say when it ran into the concrete wall? Uh, I don't know. Damn. Ba boom. Oh, this is a Catholic program here. I'm sorry, but that that was <laughs> spelled D A M. Okay. <laughs> well, I've got one based upon. Uh, I think there's a double meaning to this. Obviously, based upon our discussion. Oh man. Why can't Anglicans play chess? Uh, go ahead. Because they can't tell a bishop from a queen. That's right, because the queen Ooh. is actually kind of the head of the the Church of England. <laughs> well, no, is the it not? king now. The, the king, the dead. king now. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think king. Dr. Decock gets my double meaning on well, that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh boy, you're gonna. <laughs> okay, well, I may not that. be invited back. <laughs> you know, stop the pain, Rachel. Start to lead out. <laughs> This has been Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Real Presence Live brings you inspirational stories of faith and a look at the good and holy things happening in our local area. Weekday mornings from 9 to 11 Central. Tune in for an encore of each show beginning Saturday morning at 6. Get the podcast any time of day or night at yourcatholicradiostation.com or on the Real Presence Radio app. And remember, you can be a part of the conversation through Facebook and Twitter. Real Presence Live, local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence Radio Network.